and he puts the tape in and it plays over the, the club sound system and it's just huge and it's glorious and it's over the top and it finishes and the sound guy goes, that is the longest, most boring intro I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Began playing music in 1994 with Roadside Attraction. He performs live musical comedy. You may know him from his comedic songs like Sweatpants. Please welcome Phil Johnson to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, you seem like a really interesting guy. I want to get more into, you know, the comedy side of music that you do, how you kind of blended the two. But um, first question that I ask all my guests, just kind of to get the conversation started, how did, like, what kind of first got you into music? What was your first experience, like, learning that maybe music was something you wanted to do for as a career? Sure, yeah. I uh, When I was eight years old, they began offering music lessons at my school. And my mom said, hey, do you want to take music lessons? And I was like, nah, I don't, I don't know, maybe. And she was like, Girls like musicians, and I was like, "Cool, sign me up." Uh, and uh, and that was basically how it began. And not uh, girls like musicians, and I got get out of class. And so uh, she said, "Well, what instrument do you want to play?" And I said, oh, "I don't know." And she said, "Well, look, if you play the flute, you'll always be the only boy in the section." And I was like, "Cool, sign me up. That sounds good." And I was the only male flautist in the in the woodwind section all the way through college, and. Uh, and uh, never dated another flower. Did meet my best friend Dave in the clarinet department next door. So that was nice. Uh, but I that was my my earliest experience was uh, taking school music lessons, which is a thing that sort of exists now, sort of still. I, I have a, a few of my own students that do that as well. Um, but uh, it's less prevalent than I think it once was. And then yeah. um, I, I I was a flautist for, for 15 years. I played in orchestras. I did all that kind of stuff. Uh, I picked up the piano when I think I was 12. Uh, started playing guitar at 16. Uh, started uh, my first version of my band, I think, when I was 20, maybe. Uh, that sounds about right. 19 or 20. Um, and uh, just kept going from there. And it, it sort of dawned on me in college. I was originally a physics major in college. And after I had failed calculus three again, I thought, hmm, maybe this isn't for me because everything I was doing outside of school was music. I was playing yeah. in bands. I was teaching music. I was performing. I was, you know, doing all this. Stuff. And then I'd go to school and do physics. Enjoyed physics. So I was like. I made a jazz guitar because they didn't have a degree in rock guitar. Um, but I spent most of uh, most of that part of college uh, playing blues and jazz and funk and Latin music and and things like that. And then um, uh, and then moving that all into what I was doing creatively as a as a you know a rock songwriter as well. So that was that was kind of my yeah. early experience with music. Yeah, that's awesome. And and when you when you say that you have students who have music lessons, does that mean you're also teaching music, you know, like uh, giving instruction to other people. So how do you sort of, like, yeah. you know, balance that with your own career? <laughs> uh, that is a constant discussion I have with my teaching coaches. Um, I did. I started teaching in 1994. 
uh, as I was going to college because I had a couple of real jobs and decided that was not for me. I was never a good employee. Um, quiet thing they talk about now where people are just doing the minimum required at their jobs. I was like, no, oh, that's that was just what I did at my jobs. That's <laughs> that's a, not a new thing. Uh, but yeah. and once I started working for myself, it became a completely uh, different thing. So I started teaching uh, in 94. And uh, just recently, I've really expanded my uh, what I'm doing as far as lessons. But uh, I've got, I don't know, 35 students, something like that right now. And the balance has been very tricky along the way. Part of it is not that difficult because people want to take lessons from somebody who is a professional musician and out in the world doing that and releasing uh, recordings and doing gigs and all that kind of stuff. And that excites yeah. them. On the flip side of that, uh, you know, next week I'm going to be gone for the entire week at a comedy festival. And it's like, hey, guys, sorry, no lessons next week. And we've got to figure out how to make those up, uh, you know, somewhere else in the month. I, you know, opened up I'd like two and a half hours each morning when I'm not scheduled during the festival. And so I got yeah. people coming in that, you know, uh, for, and the, the one good thing about the pandemic was that I got everybody comfortable with doing things online. And so at that time, all of my students moved online. Now it's about half and half, I think, come in person, half online, but we always have the online option. So that's made things a whole lot easier where I can do lessons from, you know, hotel rooms on the road, which I do quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. And and so then that other, the other part that you sort of balance is the intersection with music and comedy, uh, you know, and you're going to a comedy festival, but you also, have, you know, play shows and concerts. Do you, how would you describe yourself? Are you a musician that also does com comedy, a comedian that makes music? Like what, how would you describe what you do? Yeah, that's, that was something I wrestled with for a long time because comedy was an accident. I didn't, I didn't mean to become a comedian. It just kind of mm -hmm. happened. And um, it, it opened up so much more for me to do in the entertainment industry that I, I've stuck with it. So it took me a long time before I called myself a comedian. However, because now almost everything that I do has a funny element to it, whether or not that's stand-up or music or whatever, uh, now I, I'm pretty comfortable calling myself a comedian on a professional level. So, um, but as far as one, uh, you know, a comedian that does music or a musician that does comedy, I don't, I don't differentiate that much between it because both of them play large parts in the work that I do. And, you know, people will discover me from one thing. They'll they'll see a stand-up clip on Instagram. I go, oh, this is great. And then they find out I do music, too. And they're, oh, wow, that's cool. Or they'll find the music first and then discover I do stand-up. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's really all kind of the same thing to me. In a live show, my headline show is about 45 minutes of stand-up and 15 minutes of music. Uh, whereas the stuff that I do online, whether that's the weekly live stream I do for my fan community or whatever it is, oftentimes that leans more on the music uh, than the stand-up because, you know, I, I do stand-up and Zoom shows, yeah. but it's always weird, you know? Uh, and so having the music to fall back on is a little bit easier thing to accomplish online, you know? So it's it's both of them have their uses. Yeah. And so sort of going back to when you were in school, you know, doing the music lessons, was there anything else you thought you might have wanted to do? I guess physics or, or like science was a big part of your life. Any other jobs you could have seen yourself doing outside of music? When I was a kid, I wanted to be a chef because uh, my grandfather was a chef and I do enjoy a good meal. 
And so that was something that, uh, you know, was always kind of in the back of my head, tough business all the way around, you know? Mm. Um, but yeah, other than that, and I did, I did study physics in college, uh, and things like that. So I was a science guy, but no, they're really, and certainly at this point, I can't imagine, you know, doing anything else. Every time I go, I wonder if I should learn how to code. No, that sounds miserable. I don't think I want to learn how to code. You know, I mean, I, I stuff like that was I, I was learning how to code when I was a kid on an Apple IIe. That's how far back it goes. And I was programming in basic, you know, with high res graphics, which was green lines at the time. And um, and it was OK. It was interesting then. You know, I had I got my yeah. home computing magazine or whatever it was, but it just it wasn't something that held my uh, held my attention. And certainly thinking about doing it now and the small bits of it that I have to do just for the business that I'm in is miserable. So yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and I can't imagine you, doing anything else. And now that you've sort of, you know, settled on music, you're releasing music, you make music. What like tips or advice would you give to other people just trying to start their music career? Um just start, first of all, because a lot of people wait for the right time, uh, whatever that means, um, or they're waiting for somebody to discover them or they're, you know, they're waiting for something and just don't, I mean, the, the bar to entry is so low these days, um, that you can easily put stuff out. You know, it's not, it's not the eighties where you had to wait for some record label to sign you or something ridiculous like that. Um, and there were, there were times over the years when I could have been signed to, you know, major label contracts and, and turn that kind of thing down because I had mentors at the time who were working in that side of the industry and they were like don't don't just don't um so i think that's the biggest part of it is just start just start putting stuff out there and and helping people discover it um which is always the hard part is you know getting eyeballs on things um but in some ways that's easier now but that also makes it a much more crowded marketplace so it's consistency of just being there uh for the people that enjoy your work um don't worry about pleasing everybody because there are going to be so many people that hate what you do um i get i get messages every day about how much people hate what i do and that fortunately it's only a small percentage of it uh you know 99 percent of it is people who dig what i do um you know so you have to like i can't imagine uh, you know these politicians on twitter and things like that that just just constant barrage of hate (laughs) <laughs> all day long uh from yeah. every you know no matter which side uh, of anything there's yeah. just a constant barrage of hate and you know i mean i we all let it get to us a little bit i get you know one message about some guy was like you suck and i'm like i'm gonna think about that for the rest of the day jerk thanks you know um and so you just have to kind of put that stuff out of your head uh and so it's just really about just consistently doing the work and putting it out and finding new people who enjoy it not worrying about everybody enjoying it but just finding your people that enjoy what you do. Uh, mm-hmm. Even in a comedy show now, you know, a lot of comics are like, oh, I got to kill for any audience at any time. I got to get the whole room on board. No, I just, you know, I've, I, I want the, I want the 13 people out of the 20 that like what I do and the other seven can go jump. I don't care, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a different, um, it's a little bit different mindset, but yeah, just starting, not worrying about the haters. Uh, delete and block is a great function on any app. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and and just consistently doing the work and, and putting it out there. You know, I've been doing it for a long, long time, just putting stuff out, putting stuff out, putting stuff out. Yeah. 
and you sort of all of this this whole journey started with your band roadside attraction right when you started music so what sort of went into starting that band you know what like i guess what was that whole experience like with the roadside attraction when you started sure. so in uh after high school i was going to junior college and uh i started the band with a guy who we were both dating the same girl um she was my high school sweetheart uh we had we had been on the splits a little bit we were on and off he was on and off with the same girl she introduced us and she was like hey you guys both play music maybe you should put a band together uh and we literally sat down his name was brandon uh and i sat down with brandon and i said well what kind of band are we and he was like what are you talking about and i said well are we this kind of band and i played like a a motley crew riff or something i said are we this kind of band i played like a metallica riff like that was as narrow as i had it in my head and he goes ah the first one and i was like okay and there we went um and we went through a variety of names at the beginning until we finally finally uh you know settled on roadside attraction we were a bunch of different names and we brought other guys in and there's been so many people in the band over the years that I, I mean, I'm the only, you know, running member yeah. uh, at this point. And, and, and honestly, at this point, it's mostly me anyway. I do have a group of guys that I play with now, but that's rare that I get to play with them because wrangling a seven or eight piece band to do anything mm -hmm. is a huge hassle. Um, when somebody, you know, that's, I mean, when I started playing solo and doing comedy gigs and things, you know, people call up and go, Hey, can you come down and do a set tonight? I'm like, yes. And that's it. That's all the planning that's involved is I can go do a show tonight on five minutes notice. Um, so we, we went through a lot of different things and a lot of different sounds. I mean, we were always a rock band, um, yeah. but I, I started incorporating a lot of the other stuff that I was learning as I was going to college. A lot of the, you know, the funk and the blues and the Latin stuff and things like that. And, uh, it was straight, uh, you know, I've, I've got a very broad taste in music. And so um, I'm always happy to go, oh, we're going to, this is a, like, a, yeah, it's a rock thing, but we're going to bring like a New Orleans jazz vibe into it or something like that. And yeah. I surround, I've been able to surround myself with musicians now who are like, yeah, cool, let's do that. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite things that I remember is we have a, a song called Brown Ring Around the Collar. And uh, it's like a Latin-y kind of thing. And my trumpet player, John, is he is uh he you know he played with some big reggae bands and he plays the latin stuff and the yeah. jazz stuff that's like his realm and so i go ah, jay john what 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 kind of horn line would go over the beginning of this and he goes uh and i said oh you mean like this and i totally flipped that thing on its head into a metal yeah. thing and he goes he goes that's not a, what i was talking about at all but that sounds fun uh and so that became the intro to like this uh, Afro pop song <laughs> yeah. about stupid people called Brown Ringing Around the Collar. And so we would just do things like that. We're like, yeah, that sounds fun. Let's just try it. And that's ridiculous. So let's do it. Um, you know, I, my bass player, he got kicked out of a band that he was in because he made a joke on Mike during a show. I don't even remember what the joke was, but they, they kicked him out of the band. I was like, dude, I would kick you out of the band if you didn't make the joke on Mike. Yeah. You know, um, because we just like to have fun with the whole thing. It was, you know, um, it's, it's, I, I take my career very seriously. I take my music very seriously, but I don't take myself very seriously. And so that, uh, that allows me to go, I don't know, that seems stupid. Let's try that, you know, uh, yeah. and see, and see what kind of reaction it gets, you know? 
And so I've always enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I think I forgot what your question was at this point. <laughs> no, you basically answered it. it was just, you know, the starting band. What was that group like? What mm. like what made you want mm. to start a band? So you definitely answered it. But then, you know, that moment when you kind of made the decision to be Roadside Attraction, you came up with that name. What is sort of the origin story of that? How did that come to be? Hmm. It's it not not that exciting, really. We had been, uh, I think our first name was Confused. And then we found out there was another band called Confused. Uh, and then we called ourselves Brimstone for a couple of weeks. Uh, and we, we went through like, I don't know, in the first six months, we probably had five different names. And then um, we said, well, why don't we just brainstorm a list of names? Let's let our friends vote on them. And whichever ones, that's what we call ourselves. And so Roadside Attraction was on the list. I think I might actually still have that list somewhere in my buckets of archives. Um, and uh, and that was the one that people liked, Roadside Attraction. Um, and so that's what we went with. It actually proved slightly problematic when we were uh, uh, filing for a trademark on it, uh, which we had to do because it's we weren't the only ones to come up with that name since then. And uh, um, our my lawyer called me and he goes, all right, this is dumb. Do you ever actually play by the side of the road? I said, no. Why? He goes, all right, then I think we can do it. <laughs> it's like, you can't trademark a common term. Like you can't trademark big boxes, you know? Yeah. And so if we actually played by the side of the road, we would not actually be able to use the name roadside attraction, but we actually, we did end up getting the trademark for it. It was just yeah. ridiculous. And, and, and so once you kind of started playing with this band, what was you know the live what were the live performances like like your first live show with roadside attraction what was that experience like for you um the very first show we played was in a high school gym that uh, my bass player had uh graduated from and it was big and it was echoey um and it was probably not very good but we had enough uh people there to make it fun um I remember we uh, our very first club gig. We rehearsed for a good two years before we did our first club gig because uh, we were just terrified of actually <laughs> going out and doing that. And uh, the bass player, Brandon, again, he comes up because he and I were kind of co-running the band uh, as leaders at the time. And so Brandon comes into rehearsal and he goes, uh, hey, we have a gig. And I'm like, hmm? He goes, yeah, yeah, we're playing the cabaret on the, in San Jose on a Friday night and we're headlining. And I was like, what? And he goes, uh, I just called the club to find out who books it, and they gave me a headline date. And I was like, okay. <laughs> this tells you how that club was run. Yeah. Uh, it was a t it was to total bringer room. It was like you had to, you know, you had to sell tickets. You had to do all this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, and they figured we would be able to move some tickets, which we actually did. I think we sold fifty or sixty tickets for our first night, and mm -hmm. uh, we went into the we went into the club, which was a beautiful club. It was a really great club that's not around anymore, and. Um, I was too young to be in the club. I was, I think I was only 20. And so I had to stay in the green room until we went on. And um, we had decided we needed uh, like an intro track, right? Some big, yeah. we're headlining. It's our first gig. We need like an intro. And uh, so we put together this ridiculously long, bombastic intro tape. Uh, <laughs> and then we brought a boom. We didn't know how it worked. We brought a boom box on stage and we're playing the tape to sound check it and the sound guy goes what the hell are you doing and he goes it's our intro tape he comes up on stage he goes, give me the tape and he puts the tape in and it plays 
over the, the club sound system and it's just huge and it's glorious and it's over the top and it finishes and the sound guy goes, that is the longest, most boring intro I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, all right, don't, don't play it. I mean, we'd worked on it for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, but we, yeah, we headlined our first club gig and we had enough people there to, you know, make it fun. And there were a couple opening bands and things like that. And then, you know, for a long time, it was all downhill from there. Um, really downhill it was like you know oh now we're now we're oh you know now we're playing wednesday nights for four hours in a bar kind of thing yeah. you know we yeah. we did a lot of that kind of stuff over the years where we did uh what would be considered cover gigs you know wednesdays you know for four sets type of thing but we we ended up playing three out of you know three of those sets would be original music and then you know we throw a few covers in here and there we had a lot of material and so we could cover four hours with almost our own material and, mm -hmm. and you know five or ten covers so that was a little bit odd uh, of us but yeah that's how that was that that first gig and i remember we played at my high school after i'd graduated we went back and played at my high school which was pretty fun um i had an english teacher in high school greg ferrero who i hated english class i hated all the the symbolism and the, 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 you know and all the stuff we learned in english class yeah. and uh and he knew that i hated that stuff and he and i would just battle in class over this stuff and he knew when i was losing my my mind and he would go and he was a bass player he would go hey did you see that new that new ibanez that just came out and i'd be like yeah okay and we'd talk about guitars and stuff um yeah. and he brought it back and he had written in my yearbook uh don't don't let the music die inside you which was oh you know still gets me um and so to be able to go back and play my high school and have him see my band uh was very um very cool for me that was, that yeah. was really great yeah that was an awesome a couple years ago are you a music artist trying to find a way to get your music on as many streaming platforms as possible then check out DistroKid. DistroKid is a super user-friendly and super easy to use service that will make your music available in stores like spotify Apple Music, iTunes, Amazon Music, YouTube, Snapchat, everything, everything you could imagine, it's available. People will even be able to add your songs into their Instagram stories. DistroKid helps you with the distribution, monetization, and promotion of all of your music. Use the link in the description of this video for 7% off any DistroKid package you want. Pick from musician packages designed to help artists get their own music out there, or even get a label package where you can manage up to a hundred artists from one profile. So that's more for like managers, labels, and you can also get the musician package that I mentioned earlier, which is more for artists, producers, things like that. And super easy, and you can get 7% off any package right now with the link in the description of this video. So once again, if you're looking for a way to get your music on as many streaming platforms as possible, I'm talking any platform you can think of, get DistroKid and get 7% off right now with the link in the description. Back to the program. Having a band, you kind of said that you have all these members, you know, cycling in and out. How does bring in new people losing members how does all that change affect you know the band itself and just the music that you release it it always uh for the most part changed it for the better because i was usually usually if anybody was leaving I, I could swap them in with somebody who was a better player um who could do more things and the guys that i do work with now are all outstanding players and um can 
outplay j- just about anything I throw at them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I like to be the 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 not the least talented, but I like to be the least skilled person in my band. You know, I want a bass player that plays bass way better than I do. I want a drummer that plays drums way better than I do. You know, and everybody in my band definitely does everything way better than I do. Um, even my uh, my rhythm guitarist that I was working with, Bob, uh, is a better guitarist than I am. And I'm uh, I'm a pretty good guitarist, you know, but he had skills that I didn't, you know. So I like to surround myself with really good players as much as possible. But yeah. every time there was a changeover, and God, we went through so many drummers, so many drummers. Drummers have been the bane of my existence over the years. Uh, there's been stalkers. There's been, it's just ridiculous how many drummers we've had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it it always changes the music in a way that there's a chemistry, you know, of, of bandmates that you're playing with. Um, and just the chemistry of how music gets created from a songwriting point of view and even the stuff that we'd been playing before you know, we throw a new drummer in the mix and now it sounds different on stage or whatever it is. But the the biggest part of it, I think, you know, leading to what up, up to, you know, sort of what makes me unique is I had I had been playing with a bunch of guys for about five years um, and it was quickly going nowhere. And uh, the bass player left the drum. We had been looking for a drummer again. Um, and I told the singer, I said, I, I think we're done here. And um, and I sat in my recording studio rehearsal studio uh just dropping songs on the tape just recording 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 whatever came out of my head and a couple of those were funny songs which the other guys had never wanted to do they were serious musicians uh who never wanted to do anything remotely hilarious uh mm-hmm. and uh and so i just started dumping ideas on tape and uh and i ended up going to a um and i sort of i i was i was not really letting people hear that stuff to me, that was going to be B sides. Like I'll put out a regular song and then I'll put this wacky thing on the B side, uh, you know, as, as a bonus release or, or whatever it is. Yeah. And I had a mentor at the time, a guy named Tim Sweeney. Um, and he would gather a bunch of us independent musicians in Las Vegas once a year to, you know, have this big conference and learn about how to be better at this independent music thing. And this was, this was early. This was the beginning of the independent music movement. I mean, this was pretty yeah. early on. And uh, Tim, I said, "Hey, Tim, I got the uh, I got the perfect band together finally." And he goes, uh, "Great, go solo." And I said, "No, no, no, you, you didn't hear me. Um, these guys are perfect. They're exactly what I'm looking for." And he said, "Yeah, yeah go solo." I was like, "Oh man!" <laughs> so I said, "I'll do half solo gigs and half band gigs." And yeah. and within six months I was doing, you know, 90% solo gigs, uh, cause it was just easier and, uh, and still working with the band as well. And that changed a lot of things because I found guys that were open to doing something humorous. Um, we always got a lot of comparisons to Zappa, which I've always, you know, not really bought into because all of those players are considerably more talented than we are as just, you know, technicians, uh, yeah. on their instruments, you know? And so, um, I understand the, the the spirit of the humor and things and the weirdness that we can do uh, is Zappa-esque, but um, we're not at that level of, of uh, skill by any means. But that did change things dramatically because now I could do some of the goofy stuff that the old guys wouldn't do. We could have yeah. some fun with it and we could tell jokes on mic during a show and, you know, uh, and things like that. So it, I it started sort of opened uh, up your comedy side of the of the act of the music. 
It did. Yeah. And uh, so I was doing gigs with the band and I was performing solo, doing coffee shop gigs and things like that. And I had a terrible habit of forgetting my lyrics, um, which is better these days, but not not completely cured. But I would forget lyrics constantly. And so I started making jokes on stage uh, when I would forget lyrics or I'd, you know, blow a chord or something like that. There's because there's two ways to handle mistakes on stage, either completely let it go and keep moving, which is what I tell my students. Never let the audience know you've made a mistake. Except if it's me, I make a mistake and I announce it to the entire audience and make a joke out of it and keep going, Um, you know. And so I started doing stuff like that and I was cracking jokes and the intros to the songs had some jokes in them and things like that. Uh, And a friend of mine, a a singer, guitarist named Groovy Judy in San Francisco, she said, hey, there's this comedy music show happening at the Hyena Theater in San Francisco, another place that doesn't exist anymore. She said, you should try and get on it. And uh, so I called them up and I, they gave me a little set on this thing. And this is it's what I consider my first comedy gig, my first official comedy gig. Yeah. It was billed as a comedy show and not a music show. And I showed up. I had three little funny songs that I'd been playing, uh, you know, in coffee shops and bookstores and things like that. Uh, and uh, and I did them and they, they were listening back. I have the recording of that set and it was terrible now, but it was fine at the time. And the MC of that show was a lady named Lynn Ruth Miller who at the age of uh, 72, I think she was at the time, was just starting her comedy career, and uh, which is pretty amazing. She just passed away last year, unfortunately. Um, but she did amazing things. She did amazing. She moved to London in at, at the age of 90 to start working over there. That's, I mean, she was an amazing lady. But at this uh, Hyena Theater show, she said, hey, I need a guitar player for my act. You look like you can do it. Come play guitar for my act, and uh, and we'll see what happens. And I said, great. What's What's the bit? What are you doing? And she said, oh, you'll play Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols while I throw lingerie at the audience. And I was like, I can't say no to that. That sounds like a bundle of fun. And uh, Seems so like a started- once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. <laughs> I don't exactly. think you're going to get yeah, many other offers to do that. Yeah, no, that's it's just not it's not something you're going to get offered very often. So she started taking me around to a lot of the comedy venues here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and we would do that. We would do the bit. She'd do her act. Uh, and then she started getting me sets of my own. She'd go to the producers and go, hey, he's got some stuff. Why don't you put him up for five or ten minutes? And so they started putting me up. Um, they go, hey, can you do seven minutes? And I was like, eh, I did four hours with my band last week. And then you realize how ungodly long seven minutes on a comedy stage is, uh, especially yeah. when it's not going well. you know. And so I started doing all these little fives and tens around town and eventually started to build a reputation for myself. Uh, at first, that reputation was hack guitar comic because traditional comics oftentimes do not like guitar comics and uh, so I had to work around that and that made me kind of go well look if I'm going to do this then I should probably start learning the the art of stand-up as well Um, Mm -hmm. and I didn't take classes or anything I read a few books I'd always been a stand-up fan I never thought I'd be doing it Um, but I grew up listening to Robin Williams albums and things like that and so I, uh, I said well you know maybe I should actually do this so I started watching all the comedy that I was already watching, but watching it with a critical eye, uh, you know, and learning what was going on in there and going, Oh, okay. I see how it's constructed and started writing, writing and performing and writing and performing and writing and performing. And it's different than music. Um, because you can't, you can't just rehearse a song and record it and perfect it and then take it on stage and where, and it does well, right. You have to put comedy on stage before you know, if it's going to work. And I, at this point, I've been doing comedy for 18 years. I can write a joke and have a pretty good idea of whether it's whether or not it's going to get a laugh. 
mm-hmm. and how big a laugh. Um, and I can I can pretty well design that. But you know, that's a 85% hit rate if I'm lucky. Um, yeah. still that 15% of time where I am completely wrong. And uh usually my girlfriend would go, I told you that joke wasn't gonna work. But uh it's yeah, it's uh it's that's that's sort of the the origin, the superhero origin story yeah. is Lynn Ruth Miller got me into it. Um and uh, and then you just start going, well, it's this is a thing that I should probably learn how to do. Um, and it's, it's super fun. It's super fun. The first time I took my guitar off and just held a mic in my hand was terrifying because <laughs> you're like, ah, oh, this room yeah. full of people is staring at me and we are expecting a result here. Um, which is very different than just straight music is, you know, straight music. You can play a song and people will go, good job. You, you played a song and, uh, and comedy, if it, the laughs aren't there, man, it's a long night. It's a long yeah. night. So and, there's a and very so, specific result that we're trying to get. <laughs> yeah. And so now you you mentioned your girlfriend. Does she also in the comedy realm do anything like that, or is she just kind of telling you that from an outsider's point of view? Um, she, uh, my girlfriend, was a musician. She played bass for a long time in bands, her bands, and uh, she is not a comedian. <laughs> I don't know if you know who Lyrics Born is. He's a rapper. Uh, at a uh, West no. Coast rapper out here, he uh, he's very super talented. I love lyrics born. Uh, but anyway, he and his wife, uh, his wife is his his backup singer, his hook singer in his band. And I uh, I told my girlfriend one day, I said, Hey, do you know lyrics born and Joy are married? And she goes, Oh, that's cool. They get to like travel and tour together. I go, Yeah, maybe you should become a comic. She she made a face like I had just stuffed rotten cauliflower into her mouth, and she just went, Ugh, No, why would I want to be a comic? Uh, so that's kind of her view on stand-up comedy. Yeah. <laughs> she's not a comedy fan. Um, you know, she she doesn't like watching stand-up. She uh, rarely goes to my shows because uh, I go, hey, you want to go to the show tonight? Are you going to talk about me? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to the show then. Uh, she's a doll. She's wonderful. We've been together yeah. 29 years. Um, and she always goes, I hooked up with a musician. What happened? Um, but so when she, when I run a joke by her and she goes, Eh, I don't know. It's coming from an outsider's point of view and not only an outsider's point of view, but somebody who doesn't particularly like stand up comedy in general, you know, um, and we have a different s- sort of sense of humor as well. There have been times where she doesn't like the joke and I'll put it on stage and I will literally walk off stage and text her. Told you it would work. Uh, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes she's right. You know, so yeah. she is used to it at this point where I can bounce a joke off of her and she'll go, mm, I don't know. Um, or if she goes, oh, my God, you're not going to say that on stage, are you? I go, definitely, I'm going to say that on stage now. Uh, and so that's if I get that reaction out of her, oh, my God, you're not going to say yeah. that, are you? Yeah, then I know it's a winner. Um, and usually I'm right on that case. Yeah. And and so sort of back to the more musical side, when you're coming up with these comedic songs of yours, you know, the songs that are kind of on like fun, silly topics, what is mm-hmm. that? creative process look like how do you sort of you know come up with an idea and turn that into a full-length full-fledged song sure yeah i uh i mean in the early days before i started doing like before i before i had to be a lyricist and the singer because originally i was just the guitar player in a rock band that's all i ever wanted to be um i would write some riffs throw them at my singer and go here you go you deal with it write some words and uh, and then when I had to do that, I was like, oh, this is hard. And I end up now I have to work from a lyrical premise first for the most part. Um, there will mm-hmm. be times where I'll just, you know, kind of 
throw some music together and go, okay, I'll say this for later. I don't know what this is yet, but I have to work from a lyrical premise first. And I almost always write the lyrics themselves first before I put music to them. And one thing I did a couple of years back, I had been spending a lot of time working on the stand up portion of my show um, because I, I needed to write an hour of fresh material. Um, yeah. And that hour took five years to put together, which that was my longest one. Usually it takes me about two years. Um, and that one took me five years to get right. Um, the, the next hour after that has taken about a year and a half to, to really start to lock in. But um, I had been concentrating on the, the stand up portion so much. I was like, I got to kick myself back into songwriting mode here. But I was looking for a sort of a low pressure way to do it. And so what I did is I gave myself the uh, the 30 second song challenge where I was going to put out a 30 second ish song every single day for a year. And the way that I did that was I first went in and wrote 150 lyric premises uh, where it was literally just like a setup punch. I didn't worry about writing any music for it. I just needed, you know, basically a joke that rhymes is what it comes mm. down to. And once I had 150 of those, then I started I went back. I started writing music for them. Um, and then filming them and sort of batch processing the filming early in the week and then doing the editing and putting them all scheduled out to go online every day. And as I was doing that, I wrote out the other, you know, 180 or whatever needed yeah. to fill out the yeah. year. Um, but I started there with just these, you know, quick in and out little 30 second songs that I was putting out, which was a way of sort of test marketing the premises uh, with the general public to see how they would like it. And so some of them would pop, some of them would go by the wayside and nobody ever said anything about them. And then yeah. that allowed me to, you know, kind of test market those ideas. And from there, I was able to pull some out where I thought, okay, there's more to this story. Some of them people liked, and there was just no more to that story. It was a setup and a punch and that was yeah. it. Um, but there was some of them where I'm like, okay, there's more to this story. And so um, I took, I've been able to take a lot of those and create full length songs out of them. Uh, just by expanding that story and go, well, what else happens here? Um, I have a song called The Uprising of 1244 that started as a 30-second song and turned into this five-and-a-half-minute ridiculous epic. Um, my current single out called Kitties and Boobs, uh, which yeah. is uh, ridiculous and epic but not in-depth, uh, that one started out as a 30-second song. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's been fun to just kind of see, oh, I think there's more to so this one. The other thing I did... And there, yeah, there are ahead. times where you've come back to these, you know, 30 second songs and try to flesh them out to, you know, full length more. Yep. Uh, okay. Yep. And yeah. And in fact, I did, I actually did an EP of just the 30 second songs. I did studio recordings of 30 of them, 33, something like that, yeah. um, that I, that people liked, but I didn't feel like I had more story to them to give them an actual release. And so I put out that EP, it's 33 songs and it's under 18 minutes. Uh, and now I called that one the itty bitty diddy committee. And there's another one that I'm finishing now that's kind of the same idea, but this one has actually turned into the shortest concept album of all time. It's 17 minutes, and there's 30 songs, and there's a complete story that connects each of the 30 songs. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm finishing that one now. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by W Energy. W Energy is an energy drink you mix at home from a tub. It helps you focus, it helps you concentrate, it helps you win. W is a lot like these other energy drink mix companies you see, but it's better. They have better flavors, they have better taste, they have better products. 
you can get Dragonade, you can get Galaxy Grenade, you can get Dub Sludge, and so many more great flavors like Beach and Peach. Once you have the powder to make one of these flavors, you can also get one of W's own shaker cups to make your drinks at home. If energy drinks aren't your thing, no worries. You can get products like stickers and clothing that look awesome. If you just want to try out Dubby, you can go ahead and get one of their starter packs. It comes with a shaker cup and three flavors. On top of that, any products you get on any order from Dubby, you can save 10% by using my discount code HEROIC. That's just my name, HEROIC, in all caps. One more time, that's code HEROIC at W.GG for 10% off any order. Go focus, go concentrate, go in, be better. Dubby. It's actually funny that you say that because you're doing it from the, you know, the guys through the lens of comedy. But in general, a lot of music is, you know, kind of getting shorter nowadays. Artists have gone from, you know, full length albums mm -hmm. to maybe singles now and then. And now it's just like quick mm -hmm. singles, like two minutes or less with, you know, a kind of quick, yep. catchy hook for social media. What do you think yep. that does for like music the music industry and do you think you know it's kind of good or bad that we're getting this you know faster uh i guess song these faster songs and faster uh yeah i don't artists you know it's it's like i mean if you look at the 1960s and the way that the beach boys and the beatles and people like that were working the beatles were doing two albums a year just yeah insane it's crazy um, and it was a singles market. Not only did they have to do the two albums, they had to knock out three or four other singles that weren't on the album, which was uh, yeah. odd back then. Um, and, you know, there would be it was it was very much like it is now where you had you put out two and a half, three minutes. It was you were knocking something out every six to eight weeks. You know, it was like they had Spotify in the 60s demanding the, you know, the algorithm demanding more, more, <laughs> more. Um, and so I kind of look at it through that lens of. I don't know why they were doing that back then. There was a much longer attention span back then. They probably could have milked good vibrations for four years, but they, you know, followed it up with another single eight weeks later. Um, and so I think it's sort of almost a return to that more so than a new phenomenon. And I think that, that, that return to that was certainly, uh, enhanced by the effect of the internet and the you know scrolling culture of yeah yeah, yeah. what's next yeah. what's next what's next um and we all do that you know uh, okay yeah cool what's next um and so i've had to just kind of uh adapt to that myself and go okay well i got i just got to put out more stuff you know i don't put out um a comedy special every six weeks i can't <laughs> that's impossible um a, an hour of comedy takes a good hour of comedy takes at least a year to write. Um, yeah. And that's for people who are knocking them out, like just, just driving for that. Like Christopher Titus puts out a new special every year and that's an insane pace. Um, and so having the music, I can drop music in between the, the standup releases and that just keeps it going, keeps it going, keeps it going. So I can have these little test marketed, you know, 30 second clips that people can get into. And those are, those were literally me in front of a camera, banging it out on an acoustic guitar. And then the studio versions to those are slightly, you know, slightly more involved, but not yeah. much. They're just better recorded. And then when I, you know, do a full production, um, then then that is going to be that's the big single, you know. So I kind mm -hmm. of am taking the songs through these various stages uh, that get a little bit of test marketing along the way, which then when I actually do put the full song out, 
people are like, yep, we know, we know we're going to like this song already. And the studio versions are never anything like that original 30 second version. Um, I did, I have a song called happy, happiest place on earth, uh, which is about the secret ways that Disneyland makes money. And I had done, um, I had never recorded it. I had done it on one of my comedy specials and I used to perform it live maybe 10, 10 or 12 years ago. And uh, I was like, ah, this, you know, I never recorded this song. I kind of rediscovered it as, as I started live streaming during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I, I dig this song. It's fun to do. And so when I sat down, I took a very Disney approach to it and decided I'm going to reimagineer this song. And the studio recording of it sounds nothing like the way that I used to perform it. Uh, and and that was, so that was a pleasant surprise for my fans who had heard me, you know, perform it yeah. over the years. And then I dropped them this track that was wildly different, and this, but the same song. And they were like, whoa, what did you do? That's yeah. great, you know. So I do like to switch it up quite a bit. Yeah, and then, you know, the, I guess to come, just to come up with the songs and have the ideas for the songs, is that sort of you just think of, you know, quick, like, like you were talking about for the 30-second songs, just quick little jokes that you think of. Or do you kind of try to find inspiration from other like comedians, artists, you know, mm. people who people would do both other like comedic artists? Like, how do you find inspiration, I guess? More so, not so much from comedic artists. Although I do from stand up, you know, I'll listen to comedians and go, oh, I've got a totally different take on that. Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, or it'll just, it'll, it'll generate some other idea in my head, yeah. you know, uh, that, you know, it's never, it's never plagiarism. It's never joke stealing or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but it'll just be something that they said triggers another idea in my head that is completely different from what they're doing. And so uh, that's one reason uh, among many that I watch a ton of stand up. but with the music, I will oftentimes, if I'm, if I got nothing in my brain that day, I will just listen to a bunch of just regular music. Uh, whoever pops up in my in my you know my library shuffle and go oh okay so this song came up here's the premise of that song can i flip that idea and make it funny um what's the what's the unexpected turn that this song didn't take that i could use uh and things like that and you know um that becomes something that i can play with and i did that a lot when i was writing the premises for the 30 second song challenge and um sometimes like i said some of those are just to set up in a punch and there's nowhere else that they can go and it was fine for that but if i need a full-length song then there's got to be something a little bit deeper to it um there's got to be some you know uh some ultimate truth i'm trying to get at through this song you know whatever it is or at least a, a story that i think i can make interesting and funny for three or more minutes you know yeah um and there's usually some sort of incongruity about it. Um, the uprising of 1244, I build it literally as uh, on a trip to Europe. I had seen this old uh, manuscript from the 1200s in a museum. Um, and it's literally on the cover of the single. And I saw this old manuscript. And you guys, I figured out what that song was. And I learned how to play that song. And it starts out with this very, you know, uh, very 13th century sounding music and then just rips into like this modern rock thing. And it's about a, uh, it's about a medieval King who had really, really bad fashion sense. Uh, and, uh, and there, it, there's, there's an uprising because his people thinks he, you know, they don't want him to wear Crocs anymore. Um, and it just goes all these wild places. 
So I have to go. Mm. Well, there's got to be enough story there. And I do think I don't write, um, you know, confessional music, you know, even in a funny way. Um, there's it's it's very exterior to me. Uh, the stand up stuff is still uh, also exterior. I'm not a real confessional comedian, but it, that's at least generally stuff happening in my world around me. With the music, I can be a storyteller and go anywhere that I want with it. And so mm -hmm. I'll play characters in the songs. Um, I will, you know, think cinematically a lot of times with the songs and go, well, if this were a movie, uh, I'm writing this song of that movie yeah. um, and, and tell stories that way about it. And for something that I'm going to play on a comedy stage, there has to be, you know, a joke every other line or so, um, yeah. which can be tricky. Some of the songs I don't do on comedy stages because they're funny, but they're not that funny for comedy yeah. stages. You know, um, they fall under novelty music is a different type of term. So like my new single, Kitties and Boobs, it's a rousing song. It's not punchline filled, um, but people enjoy it. It's one of those where they're like, I can't get that stupid song out of my head. Uh, and so I'm trying to figure out now how to close my shows with that, um, which is tricky because... I usually just play acoustic guitar in my songs and that song does not work that way. And so now I'm yeah. sort of learning how to sing with tracks on stage and, and deal with that. Uh, Cause I don't have a band behind me on that kind of gig. Um, and so that's been an adventure, but yeah, it's like testing them out and going, okay, well, what's going to work. Is this funny enough to put on a stand-up stage or is this just a release? And I have plenty of songs that I don't uh, play during my shows. And so again, that just, it's a whole other Avenue that people find out after they've seen me at a gig. And they go look my name up on Spotify and there's, you know, eight hours of stuff on Spotify uh, yeah. that I put out over the years. And they just go, oh, boy, there's a, it's a it's a deep rabbit hole now. Yeah. And and so was there, you know, you kind of talked about it earlier, the, the comedic side, just actually stand up comedy, the joke telling that takes a long time to sort of, you know, perfect work on figure out what your routine is going to be. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of people find that really, one, both really hard, and then also just a lot of people try to force something sooner. They want it to kind of move faster. So sure. was there ever a moment where maybe, you know, you got frustrated or were like thinking of like if comedy was really the right thing for you to do? Oh, well, let's see. What time is it? Uh <laughs> Yeah, constantly. Are you kidding? Uh, every comic is like that. Um, we, you know, we when we all started like doing Zoom shows and stuff, and everything was shut down. The the timing on a Zoom show because of the latency is considerably different than when you're standing on a stage in yeah. front of people. You know, and just that. I mean, that the extra half a second that it takes to hear the laugh after the punchline is enough time for a comedian to reconsider all of our life choices. Uh, because you're just like, oh, I'm bombing. Oh, there's the laugh. Okay, great. You know, and so yeah, comics are constantly fighting that idea, especially, I mean, you have a bad set and you're like, ah, oh, I suck. I'm terrible at this. I should just quit. I should just do something else. And then the next mm -hmm. set is great. And you're like, oh yeah, I do know how to do this. I had one of those, I had been, uh, I had been turned down from a club that I really wanted to work at. And, um, I was super bummed about it. And they were, they were like, we're just not going to hire you. And I was like, ugh. And that weekend, I was booked for some shows in Las Vegas, uh, and I went to do one show, and I I, uh, I went up, and I just destroyed. Like, And I don't say that lightly. I'm not one of those comics that's always patting myself on the back about how great yeah. I did. But I destroyed on that set. 
And I walked off stage and I texted my girlfriend. I went, I know how to do this. And she was like, I told you, <laughs> you know, so we yeah. constantly doubt ourselves, you know. Um, and I think uh, I think even more so than in music, because in music, it can be a little more the, the response is more passive. People go, oh, yeah, that's a cool song. I like it. Um, the, the the response in comedy is very cut and dry. There either is a laugh or there isn't. And there's no in between. Mm. Um, and so that means the peaks and the valleys of the performer's mental state is uh, also uh, swings back and forth pretty violently like that yeah. as well. You know, and I don't like to. I don't like to, uh, you know, do the whole tears of a clown type of thing because it's it's not true. But, um, yeah, it, it's painful to stand on a stage and have nobody laugh at your jokes. And I've been there plenty of times. Um, the last uh, special that I put out called Burning Sensation, uh, I, like I said, it took me five years to write because I was doing material that I didn't have the chops to do. Um, it, had, it was stuff that had been sitting in my notebooks for a long time. And I thought I got to start pushing this stuff out on stage and see if it works. And I was making people angry, uh, with some of the material until I figured out how to word it right, how to deliver it right. Uh, and, and just really sell the jokes correctly because the performance of the joke, it, you know, can change. And that could be the difference between a laugh and somebody being angry at you. And uh, so I had to do a lot of work to really refine the delivery and the writing on that on that special. Um, and then it worked. And then, you know, that sort of brought me to a new level of what I could do. But, yeah, that mental state is constantly like, I mean, literally from minute to minute on stage. Oh, man, that was great. Oh, man, I suck now. Oh, why is that guy crossing his arms? There'll be one dude crossing. There's always this guy, you know, and we will. The, the person who chart. doesn't laugh at a comedy show. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, dude, you pay twenty bucks to get in here and a two drink minimum. Relax. I, uh, and yeah, no, I've I've talked to a comedian. Uh, I forget who it was, but I was talking to to them, and they were saying they had a show, and the entire show they were focused on one person in the crowd, like you said, like cross arms, yep. like this, like didn't laugh once. Yep. And then you know, after the show, when people were coming up, that guy came up to them and was like, "Hey, I really liked your set. I thought you were really funny." And he was oh, like, yeah, "Then yeah. why didn't you laugh?" Yeah, yeah. I had that uh, just uh, like a couple of weeks ago. There was one guy. It was last week, in fact. There was a guy sitting at the back of the room. It was a shallow enough room where I could see the back row. And uh, dude did not laugh at a single thing I said for the entire 45 minutes I was on stage. And then he comes up to me at the merch table after. Hey, you were really great. That was really fun. I was like, okay. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I just try to have yeah. to think, okay, maybe that dude's having a good time. And that's just how he has a good time. Uh weird but fine you know so i try one of the best pieces of advice i ever got uh i was working at a club in indiana with a, i was opening for a guy named ron shock who was an absolute brilliant comedian and storyteller and uh we, we were getting ready to go on stage and i think it was i think it was the saturday early show which is what every comedian lives for is the saturday early show uh, it's always the best show of the week um and uh and the place was packed and uh, I said, uh, I said, oh, man, looks like a hot crowd tonight. And he went, no. What? What? He said, no. He said, never judge the crowd before you go on stage. Always go up neutral. They're not good. They're not bad because they're never going to do what you expect them to. And I was like, oh. And I started doing that, not prejudging the crowd at all and just going up neutral. And it really changed the way that I approached the stage. And I was able to now just go up and deal with that audience on whatever energy they were bringing to the show that night. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's, you know, the audience is as big a part of the show as the comedian is. If it's a low energy audience, we have to approach it a completely different way. 
as if it's uh, a high energy Saturday early show audience, or if it's a drunk, tired Friday late show audience, or God forbid, a Sunday show. Those are the worst, uh, you know. And so we have to go in and meet that audience at their level and then figure out how to take them one notch higher than that. And mm -hmm. by not prejudging the audience, we're able to, I'm able to do that better. Yeah. And so, you know, with, with all these comedic songs, I'm sure once you release some of them, you feel like they could be sort of like hit or hit or miss, or maybe you find that a lot. Um, was there any song that you've released that, kind of performed better or worse than you initially thought it would um yeah there's always that i and i try not to even put that much expectation on a song when i put it out um because mm. at the end of the day i'm really just writing songs that i wanted to hear uh and i i kind of don't care if anybody likes it or not um i'm gonna put it out and the people that like it are gonna like it and the people that don't aren't um and there are certainly people that follow my work that only like the stand-up part or only like the music part and that's fine mm -hmm. it, you know that i can offer something to to all of them for that but they like something that i'm doing so that's great um but i have a song called the legend of miss garcia that is my my most streamed song which is one that i don't know i don't even perform that often it's funny enough to put on stage but mm -hmm. it's a lot of work to sing and so unless i had a really hot crowd I did not do it. I needed like if the crowd was going to be energetic enough for me to really belt this tune that was difficult to sing, then I would do it for him. Um, but it's not one that I almost ever perform. Uh, I do it in my live streams sometimes when I'm just sitting here in the studio and live streaming. Yeah. But I don't do it in live uh, in person shows that often. But that has turned into one of my bigger streaming songs, which is kind of a surprise. It's about the Spanish teacher from my high school and uh, her reputation uh, for being. Um, uh, probably doing things that would get her arrested now, but um, there was that. And uh, and then I have um, there, the, I have another song that I don't like anymore. Uh, it was one of my early songs. A song called uh, it's called LCW, which means lying, cheating, whore. And it was a song that always did really well in my live shows early on. I put it on my first comedy special, first or second, first show I think, um, and. That is consistently one of my most downloaded songs, and I don't like it anymore. I don't think it's representative of what I do, um, yeah. but, you know, it's out there. People dig it, so I leave it out there. You know, we grow out of that early yeah. stuff, um, you know, as musicians and, and definitely as comedians. But, you know, I yeah. just have to go, well, that's where I was in 2006 or whatever it was, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, usually when, when a music artist comes on usually i like to ask them if they could make a song with any artist in the world who would it be and i want to ask you that question but i also want to give you the option of if you could perform a comedy show with any comedian in the world who would that be also um let's see i would absolutely love to work with eddie Izzard on something um whether that were a stage show or some other creative endeavor i think uh, i think she's an genius uh, such a lot and there are loads of other comics that i uh, adore um some who i've been able to at least interface with on a personal basis say Jeff yeah. or somebody like that who's wonderful um and then you know there are uh i've i've gotten to hang out and talk with christopher titus which is always a treat um ralphie may before he passed uh things like that but um i yeah eddie Izzard is somebody that i would definitely love to do something creative with 
Um, even though, uh, you know, my style, nothing like his apparently, uh, or hers, sorry, I keep messing that up. Um, and, uh, even though I feel, I hear it in my delivery, I hear it in my, uh, material, but it, that doesn't seem to translate because I've tried, uh, advertising to Eddie as art fans and they go, nah, <laughs> sorry. All right. Um, from a music point of view, Butch Walker, 100%. I would love, love, love to do something with Butch Walker. He's my absolute favorite songwriter, uh, and, um, and producer. I think he's an amazing producer as well. And he's one where I will often, if I'm working on a song or working on a recording, I would go, what would Butch Walker do with this? Um, and, uh, and so he's, he's definitely somebody I would like to work with. And then, uh, Tim Minchin, I think who sort of straddles both of those worlds, uh, a little bit. Uh, Tim Minchin is an absolute brilliant, ridiculously talented person, um, who I yeah. would like to try and keep up with in a project. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, for, uh, for, you know, playing a concert or a comedy set, or, you know, like you were talking about earlier, 45 minutes comedy 15 minutes music do you just have any dream venue that you would want to perform at that that can be an actual like physical venue or just like a festival that you would want to play yeah i mean on a realistic basis that is any any room that's full of people that enjoy what i do um i've played how i've played living rooms i've played backyards i've played comedy clubs i've played theaters military bases colleges whatever if it's a room full of people that dig what i do that i'm happy um i've always wanted to play the warfield in san francisco the warfield theater um mm -hmm. which i think is a great venue um and that one's kind of always been in the back of my head somewhere but now watching bill burr do red rocks in madison square garden i go oh, there's more <laughs> <laughs> maybe i want to do red rocks <laughs> yeah and then um, I guess just for the, all the music that you've released, is there a song of yours that's your favorite that you really like? Yeah, my favorite song isn't even a comedy one. It's called Kissing in the Rain. Uh, and it's a song I wrote for my girlfriend. It's uh, it's a straight up uh, love song. Um, uh, it's got kind of a train vibe to it uh, that I was and I was just really excited about the the production on it so much so that I, I I had mixed the first version myself and released it. When I listened back to it a while back, I was like, eh, this needs a new mix. So I sent it to my mix engineer that I work with now. We remixed the whole thing and we released it. Um, and that one, because it's a personal story to me, um, that is definitely my favorite song of the ones that I've written. Um, of the comedy stuff, um, I don't know. It always changes. Um, I, I'm really, really happy with the way Happiest Place on Earth came out because I think musically it's, it hits kind of my sweet spot as a listener. Um, but, you know, they always say the best song is the one you haven't written yet. So I'm always excited yeah. to see what comes next. Yeah. <laughs> well, those are all the questions I had for you today. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great conversation. And, you know, where can people find you online? You got some links there under you, but I'll leave some down yeah. below in the description <laughs> as well. But, you know, plug whatever you want, music, comedy, anything you have going on. Let the people know. Sure. Yeah. PhilJohnsonComedy.com is the place to get everything. That's where the links to everything are. Um, you can also just Google Phil Johnson Comedy. Do not just Google Phil Johnson. Uh, the other guy that comes up is an evangelical religious philosopher. Uh, so much fun when his people find my website. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so PhilJohnsonComedy.com and on most of the social media places, Phil Johnson Comedy as well. If you go to my website, there's a link right at the top where you can get a free gift from me. Uh, there's a free uh, welcome pack of swag that you can get for uh, for joining my fan community, which is free. 
Um, we have a fantastic fan community uh, currently sitting at about a thousand people around the country um, and building on a daily basis. So there's that. Uh, my latest single is Kitties and Boobs, which is out in all the places. Um, the next uh, that next EP I was talking about are short songs. I don't have a release release date for that yet because the concept album part of it just occurred to me last week and now I'm having to do a bunch of different stuff with it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that'll be coming soon. I do release stuff pretty regularly. I was shooting for every six weeks, but I've kind of fallen off a little bit as I've had to release other things for my fan community. Um, I, there's NFTs coming soon, all sorts of great stuff. So yeah, philjohnsoncomedy.com is the place to go. Yeah, it seems like you're doing a bit of everything. I'll keep an eye out for any new music and I'll be sure to check out that fan community and make myself a part of it. So thank you again Please so do. much for coming on. And I can't wait to Thanks see all this me. new stuff you have coming out. All right, man. Thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. All right. So just kind of, you know, edit that and get it out sure. whenever I can. And I'll tag you and all the promotional stuff, all the social stuff. So um, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll, sh I'll share it out to all my people for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you again for coming on. It was a, it was a great, great chat. Good. I'm glad I had fun. Yeah, me too. All right. All right. Um, talk, talk to you later. Bye.